From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. As the investigation into the Club Q shooting moves forward, a look at whether Colorado's red flag law could have kept the suspect from having guns. When people don't follow the rules, we have anarchy. We can't have some sheriff decide, I'm going to pick and choose. I would caution against an assumption that the circumstance of this case would lead to application of the red flag law. Then, two sisters. Alzheimer's runs in their family. Jessica tested negative. Robin tested positive. I'm potentially five years from my age of onset. Maybe information I didn't want to know. I thought I had more time. How they're planning for their futures together. The thing that I just know I can do is support her emotionally. Thank you for supporting CPR. Every day, your membership is put to good work serving communities across our state. You ensure that news and music remain freely available to Coloradans everywhere. Your generosity helps make it all possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. The mass shooting at Club Q in Colorado Springs has put the spotlight on the state's red flag law. Some lawmakers are asking why the suspect wasn't barred from possessing guns after an earlier arrest. CPR's Andrew Kenny is here to explain what we know and how it might lead to changes in the state law. Andy, welcome. Hello. Let's start with the alleged attacker's previous criminal history and why it's drawing scrutiny now. Sure. So the suspect in this attack is 22 years old. And last year, there was an incident where the El Paso County Sheriff's Office accused this person of threatening their mother with a homemade bomb, multiple weapons, and ammunition. And during that incident, the suspect also live-streamed wearing tactical gear like armor in a standoff with law enforcement. The suspect was then arrested and charged with kidnapping and menacing. And this all happened in 2021. And what became of that case? We know that the charges were dropped, but not exactly why the case has been sealed. There's also an open question about whether police could have or should have, in this case, used what's known as Colorado's red flag law to try to keep firearms away from this person after that incident. For those who aren't familiar with it, what is the red flag law and how would it apply here? So this red flag law is one of the more significant recent gun laws the state's passed. And the basic idea is that it allows a judge to ban a person from having or buying guns for anywhere from a couple weeks to a year or longer. That's if there's evidence that they're a threat to themselves or to others. So in a case where someone's calling in a bomb threat, for example, or saying they have ammunition, they're going to hurt others, then law enforcement or the person's family could ask a judge to make that red flag order and take away the guns or prohibit them from having guns. Did that happen in the 2021 case? No, there's no sign in the public records that El Paso County law enforcement tried to take away the guns or prohibit the guns for this person who later became apparently involved in the Club Q attack. And in fact, the Denver Post reported that the county sheriff's office has never filed one of these red flag cases in the nearly three years that the law has been in effect. And that's leading to questions from some lawmakers. Here's Democratic Senator Rhonda Fields. So when people don't follow the rules, we have anarchy. We can't have some sheriff who's in charge of a county 
and then decide I'm going to pick and choose. So there's this implication that authorities had what you might say a red flag, that they could or should have done more to stop the shooter. What are El Paso County officials saying? Not much about that earlier case. The records about the 2021 incident were sealed under state law and the charges had been dropped again. And the sheriff's office says that prevents them from talking about it. And the local DA says the same thing. Colorado Springs Mayor John Southers urged people to withhold judgment since there's still a lot we don't know about both the Club Q shooting and the previous incident. I would caution against an assumption that uh, the circumstance of this case would lead to application of the red flag law. We don't know that. I would caution any conclusion either way or not. So let's talk about these red flag laws more broadly. How well have they worked in the past? The evidence is still really emerging on these. At this point, 19 states plus Washington, D.C. have similar laws. They're also known as extreme risk protection order laws or ERPO. And they started out more than 20 years ago in Connecticut, but they really became more widespread after the Parkland, Florida high school shooting just a few years ago. I talked to Professor Shannon Frateroli, a gun violence researcher at Johns Hopkins, and she said these laws can be very effective from what we've seen so far. This is a complex problem that has a lot of causes at its core, and it needs a lot of different solutions in order to really, um, you know, turn this around. But I, I do view ERPO as a promising solution that has the potential to make a big difference, again, if it's implemented. But so far in Colorado, what's interesting is that the law actually hasn't been used very much by law enforcement. And why hasn't it been used very much? Well, there's a couple possible reasons. The Associated Press ran the numbers, and they found that Colorado courts had only issued about three, three and a half of these orders for every 100,000 adults living in the state. Meanwhile, in Florida, the rate was almost 10 times higher. So courts in some other states are using these way more often. And so as to why, Professor Frateroli said a lot of it comes down to the enthusiasm of local law enforcement. And in a lot of areas of Colorado, this red flag law was actually really controversial. You saw places, including El Paso County, where, again, the shooting took place, leaders saying that they thought it was unconstitutional and that they were going to be really limited in how they used these red flag petitions. Was it political in some way? It depends on how you define political. The sheriff's office in El Paso County said back in 2020, I think, that they were only going to file red flags if they had probable cause of a crime. And they're saying that's because, you know, you shouldn't take away someone's core rights unless they've likely committed a crime. But advocates for these laws say that misses the point because the red flags are supposed to take away the guns before the person goes out and hurts somebody else or hurts themselves. Um, The district attorney and Michael Allen for this area also has tweeted that He thinks the law is unconstitutional. And Frateroli, the professor, she says this kind of backlash is pretty unusual. The response from law enforcement in Colorado is atypical. You know, we just haven't seen that kind of pushback um, in other parts of the country. She did stress, by the way, that the law is still new. Colorado is still learning how to use it. And a lot of law enforcement leaders here actually are embracing it. So let's go back to the Club Q case. It sounds like we won't know for a while why a red flag petition wasn't filed. In the meantime, do you think this will lead to changes in the legislature? It may well. Democratic lawmakers in particular are already talking about reforms and they do control the state legislature. 
Representative Tom Sullivan said that one change could be to allow more categories of people to initiate these red flag petitions. So, for example, allowing educators and doctors and mental health professionals, not just police and family, to ask to take away the guns. If jurisdictions, you know, elected officials in those jurisdictions decide that they won't do anything about it, okay, well, you know, we need to have the people who are directly impacted uh, to be able to do it. And more broadly, Democrats are also talking about other measures like an age limit for purchasing certain guns like AR-15 style long rifles, as well as waiting periods and changes to background checks before someone can purchase a gun. That we'll all have to wait for the legislative session that begins in January. And, you know, one lawmaker put it this way to me, this will not be the last gun violence. It may not even be the last terrible mass shooting that we see in Colorado between now and when the legislature reconvenes in just a couple months. Andy, thanks so much. Thank you. That's Andrew Kenny from CPR's public affairs team discussing red flag laws and how Colorado's gun laws might change in the wake of the Club Q shooting. Hundreds have shown up at vigils across the Front Range to mourn the victims and support the survivors. There's another plan tonight in Denver's City Park Pavilion. Denverite's Rebecca Tauber takes us to one of the remembrances. What it really means to love. Denverite stood in solidarity with Club Q and Colorado Springs. So many people showed up to Real Works Denver that organizers opened overflow space at the historic LGBTQ nightclub tracks. People comforted each other as religious leaders like Reverend Brian Henderson offered prayer. I invite us to hold hope together. Reach out and find a hand to hold if you're comfortable doing so. And as we hold hands, literally or figuratively, may we pause in silence to remember the five lives lost. Louise Baskin gave people hugs as they walked in, as part of the LGBTQ advocacy group Free Mom Hugs. I had one gentleman immediately start to cry on my shoulder and say, why do they hate us? And all I can do is offer words of comfort to say, that's why we're here together to, you know, hold each other up. The shooting at Club Q marked the U.S.'s 601st mass shooting this year. In a political moment where many LGBTQ advocates say hate speech is on the rise. People spoke of anger at gun policy and hope for a better future, including Anti-Defamation League Regional Director Scott Levin. Why am I angry? I'm angry because of the people who are culpable, the ones that normalize hate so much that someone would go out and shoot and kill innocent people. I am angry. Many speakers demanded better enforcement of the state's red flag laws and more legislation to protect targeted groups. But above all, people grieved together and commemorated the lives lost. Daniel Ashton. Daniel Ashton. Raymond Green. Raymond Green. Kelly Loving. Kelly Loving. Ashley Paul. Ashley Paul. Derek Rump. Derek Rump. You gave me a song that you love me. Rebecca Tauber, Denverite. Now I can go on you love me. 
after the mass shooting at Club Q, author Melinda Lowe, who grew up in Colorado, reshared an essay on social media that she wrote following the attack at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. It's something that still resonates today, six years later. We asked her to read it. The first gay club I went to was a small, dark bar on the plains of Colorado the summer after my first year in college. I went with my childhood best friend because we'd both spent the last year discovering that our sexual orientations weren't as straight as we'd thought. I don't remember the name of the club. I do remember feeling like I was stepping into a new world, one that was both terrifying and exhilarating. I didn't know anyone there except for my friend. I'm pretty sure I was the only Asian American there. I'm sure that I stuck out like a sore thumb. But that was also the first time I realized there is a place for people like me. However naive and inexperienced I might have been, I also felt welcomed. I went to other gay clubs. There was Man Ray in Cambridge, Massachusetts, another dark box of a club between Harvard and MIT, where I went with my college friends. They had a special queer night every Thanksgiving, and after college in our early 20s, we'd load up on turkey and stuffing and then dance it off at Man Ray, which happened to be literally next door to my friend's apartment. There were bigger clubs, too. In San Francisco in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was Club Q, a gigantic warehouse of a club somewhere in Soma where queer go-go dancers twisted on platforms above the heaving dance floor. Hundreds of women shimmied beneath the colored lights, and when I pushed through the sweaty crowd, I felt totally insignificant and yet completely seen. Terrified of being overlooked, hopeful of being looked over. I've been to Girl Bar in Los Angeles, Candy Bar in London, El Rio and the Cat Club in San Francisco, I've been to pride parties in New York City where I felt like a small town loser, but wouldn't have missed those parties for the world. I've been to Dinah Shore and Mishfest and Women's Weekends in sleepy Guerneville, California. All these clubs, all these dance parties for queer women, they showed me that there are thousands of us out there and we are all searching for connection with each other, always seeking love and hoping for acceptance. When I was a kid and we went on family vacations, no matter what city we went to, my parents always wanted to go to Chinatown. I remember when I was a frustrated teen thinking that this was the stupidest thing ever. Every Chinatown was the same. Crowded, stinking of strange herbs and fish guts, the sidewalks thronged with cheap imports, the restaurants loud with Chinese speakers all seeming to yell over each other. I didn't understand when my parents took me to all these Chinatowns, in San Francisco, in Boston, in New York, in Toronto, that they were seeking a place where they felt at home. In Chinatown, we were like everyone around us. In Chinatown, my parents spoke the language. As a lesbian adult, that's what going to queer bars and clubs meant to me. They were spaces where I spoke the language. I was accepted as family. They were places of joy. They were places of freedom. They were crucibles of emotion, pulsing, music-filled rooms where we were encouraged to feel everything. They were spaces full of drama, rooms ripe with possibility. 
For many people in the gay community, gay clubs are our living rooms and our sanctuaries. They are the places we meet the people we love and the spaces where we find ourselves. The terrorist attack at the Pulse Club in Orlando has left me heartbroken for so many reasons. I hurt for the victims and their families. I hurt for my LGBTQ family, which has had one of our most precious places invaded by hatred. The fact that this attack took place during Pride Month is not an accident. It is a direct attack on our freedom to be ourselves. I don't go to many gay clubs anymore. Like many people, after I got married, I moved on from those electric spaces. I created a more private living room with my wife and our families. But I still remember those clubs for the joy they brought me and the freedom they taught me. These spaces are crucial for our LGBTQ community. It's no accident that one of the foundational events in the gay rights movement took place at the Stonewall Inn, a gay bar. And I know that despite the horrific nature of the attack, it will not stop us from being proud of who we are. My heart goes out to all LGBTQ people today. I am with you. I am you. Linda Lowe is a best-selling author and National Book Award winner. She grew up in Louisville and still visits every year. She wrote that essay following the mass shooting at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando six years ago. She reshared it on social media after the attack at Club Q in Colorado Springs. We'll post a link in the Colorado Matters podcast. I'm Andrea Dukakis here with CPR News and KRCC. She thinks her ability to Google is going to figure out some big global conspiracy. So many issues have wedged families apart the last few years. Personal, political, a global pandemic. I haven't wanted to ask if you were going to get vaccinated because I couldn't live with the terror that brings in me. How one mother and daughter unwedged the issues that divided them. Colorado Public Radio presents The Wedge, everywhere you get your podcasts. Robin McIntyre, who's 39, lives every day with the knowledge that she's almost certain to get Alzheimer's. Her family carries a genetic mutation that leads to early onset of the disease. Ten years ago, Robin, who lives in Laramie, Wyoming, tested positive for the mutation. Her sister Jessica McIntyre, who lives in Lakewood, doesn't carry the mutation, nor does their other sister. We first spoke with Robin and Jessica McIntyre in 2016 about how they're planning for their futures and about some of the research they've been a part of. I recently sat down with them for an update on how they're doing. Robin, Jessica, welcome back. Thanks. Thank you. Robin, let's start with you. Last time we spoke, you weren't experiencing any symptoms of the disease. How are things now? I am fortunate to be able to report that I'm still healthy and my brain seems to be functioning as I would consider normal. Um, I did ask the researchers of my study 
this year. And I'm not sure if this was information that I actually wanted after I got it, but they have what they call your EYO, your estimated year of onset. And they use scientific algorithms to figure out this number. And they also base it on your parents' age of onset. But my EYO is negative five. Uh, which means I'm potentially five years from my age of onset. Um, Again, maybe information I didn't want to know. I thought I had more time. I didn't realize that my mom was in her early 40s when she actually probably was showing symptoms that we just didn't realize. But for me, knowledge has always been power. So I'm going to take that information and just use it to benefit me in any way I can. And you're 39 right now. Um, And is it inevitable that you will develop Alzheimer's? Unless there's something um, miraculous that happens as far as a preventative drug goes. Yes, I will develop the disease. Um, It's it's a guarantee with the genetic mutation. But as we talked about last time I was here, I had just started a clinical drug trial for a preventative medication, and I'm still in that drug trial. So that was in 2015. And I do actually know that I'm on the drug. And there, um, we've been able to continue this study Obviously, because something good is happening, but we're not sure if it's pushing the needle enough yet. We've been talking to folks with Alzheimer's and to researchers, and I've posed this question to others who are at the beginning stages of the disease or know they might develop Alzheimer's. Um, I wonder if you're always second-guessing yourself when you forget something. I mean, we all forget things. So are you always thinking, oh, this is because of, you know, this genetic marker that I carry? There are certainly times where I question that, but for the most part, I've somehow been able to stop that mind chatter. And I really do believe in the power of the mind. I believe in positive thinking. And so I feel if that's what I'm putting out, then hopefully the results will also be positive. So I somehow find strength in each day to not second guess myself and know that if I do misplace something or have a lapse in my memory, that that can be completely normal for any of us, especially with the hectic lives that we live. But there are also times where I will test my memory and surprise myself in a really good way. I'm like, hey, I think I'm doing okay. (laughs) Jessica, Talk about when you found out you didn't have the genetic mutation. That's before Robin found out she did. Yes. Uh, I was one of the first in our family of our generation to find out. I was, this was many, many years ago, I was 26. So it had been 2006, and that was right after our mom got her diagnosis. And I knew that I it was possible for me to get tested and for the rest of our family to get tested. And I, I jumped on that immediately. I'm someone that can't let things slide. I need to know the information as soon as possible and found out that I was negative. 
And it is a very, very, very personal decision that nobody should really take lightly to find out their genetic status. And Robin, why did you wait so long to be tested? You knew this was in your family. What made you wait? I didn't want a diagnosis to change anything about my life. I didn't want it to define who I was, which is funny because now Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's awareness, speaking on it, being in a drug trial is everything I am. It is who I am. But I wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to start making life choices because of that information. So I just wanted to make sure that I was in a good place emotionally, um, physically. I wanted to make sure I was in a good place with my job. And um, I think I finally just decided that not knowing had gone too far and that knowledge was going to be power to me at that point. And so I went ahead and scheduled the appointment to find out my status. My my genetic status results actually sat essentially in an envelope for, gosh, probably three or four years before I decided to pull the trigger. You didn't want to open the envelope. I didn't. Well, I didn't have the envelope. The researchers had it. But all I had to do was make a phone call and ask for the results and then they have to give it to me. But um, yeah, they sat there for quite a while. And actually, then another five years passed on before I told most of my family. What prompted you to finally ask what the results were? I'm not really sure what drove that final decision. I think it had just gotten to a point where I no longer could stand it to not know and had made up my mind that no matter what the results were, I was going to be okay. And then, Jessica, when you found out that Robin had the genetic mutation, can you talk about a conversation you had with her or what your reaction was? Well, that was interesting because we were in Pittsburgh at our study site, and I was there with Robin for her annual testing. And she had told us that we were going to, we knew that this was information that we were going to have. It was scheduled in a conference room with, I think it was Dr. Clunk, the doctor. I definitely remember there was quite a few people. And we we sat there and they basically said, are you ready to know? And we all said yes. And then they said, she is, you know, positive for, for the gene. And I feel like we all kind of, you know, the air went out of the room. And then the conversation almost went straight to what are we going to do? And from there, that conversation just kept happening throughout the day, throughout the next few days. You know, we definitely tried to take some time to enjoy ourselves as well. And knowing that there wasn't anything pressing at that time was also then a little bit of a relief because then we knew we still had time to figure out, you know, figure out a plan, figure out what we needed to do. We just knew that she had the gene, but we also knew that she wasn't presenting any symptoms yet. And that was fairly comforting to know that we did still have time. And I want to talk about, you know, thoughts about the future in a minute, but can you talk about your family's history with Alzheimer's, Robin? 
Um, yeah, so as far as we can trace it back medically, our grandfather, our mother's father, was the first family member diagnosed with the disease. His mother, we do believe had the disease as well, simply based on our grandma's memory of her behavior. I think there was also records of her being treated, you know, with electric shock therapy when they certainly didn't know what Alzheimer's was. But our grandfather was diagnosed in the 70s and passed away in the late 80s. It wasn't until the early 2000s that my mom and her siblings realized that they potentially were facing the same disease that their father had. And that happened to show up in symptoms in two of her brothers. And they worked in the oil fields. Um, Their boss noticed that they were maybe a little bit more in danger or things that typically were under control at work were starting to slip. And they had grown all grown up together. So the boss knew our uncles very well. Um, At that point, then in 2006, a lot of our family members had genetic testing um, done, and that's when they found out that five of the six siblings had the genetic mutation. They instantly got involved in research. The research that they were involved in actually helped scientists answer questions about the disease that had baffled them for years. And it was also then from that research that scientists realized they needed to start studying the generation under my mom and her siblings. And that's when my cousins and myself and my sisters got involved in research. And we've been involved in observational research and then also clinical drug trials. And all of that started in 2009. We just heard from Robin and Jessica McIntyre. Robin, who lives in Laramie, tested positive for a genetic mutation that runs in the family and leads to early-onset Alzheimer's. Jessica McIntyre, who lives in Lakewood, tested negative. Robin told me the two were together when they found out she tested positive. She immediately went to offering to carry a baby for me, which was pretty <laughs> spectacular. Um, like, if you want kids, I'm here to help. <laughs> and I don't know. that was the first thing, literally, I mean, I would say we were probably walking out of the hospital and this came up and I can't fathom why that was the first thing do that either I of you Do either of you have kids? No. no. But from there it goes into, you know... Uh, Thoughts of dignity, you know, powers of attorney, types of insurance coverage that are important, how you want to see your end of life play out, some of which these decisions we've made and some, you know, now knowing my estimated year of onset will probably occur sooner than later. And Jessica, how do you think about the future in terms of you and Robin and how that will play out? Well, we have the good news is, is we have another sister, our dad, and we have a ton of support from friends and family. Robin's really um, built herself an amazing community up in Laramie and not just Laramie, I would say Wyoming in general. 
Whereas at this point now, I'm about the farthest one away from her. So the thing that I just know that I can do is, you know, support her emotionally and knowing that, you know, money that I set aside, you know, maybe used to help care for Robin, but also knowing that we, aside from just the two of us, we do have a lot more family and, you know, and dear friend support. So that really helps like lessen the, you know, I don't want to call it a burden, but, you know, for lack of a better term, it really helps take some of that off of my plate to where it doesn't feel like it's just me and just Robin. We have this whole huge community of of friends and family that we know will all kind of step in however we need it. And Robin, do you have a, a sense of what you want that future to look like um, whenever you start developing signs of Alzheimer's? I do. Unfortunately, it doesn't take a lot of imagining because I've watched so many family members suffer from the disease. And that's certainly one thing that has crossed my mind is I don't want to suffer. Um, So again, little left to the imagination. And yes, I do have an idea of what I want it to look like. And mostly... It is a burden and I don't want to be a burden. So I f- feel the the more plans that we have in place and the more that I vocalize how I want that to look, the easier it will be for my family because they're not going to have to make it up. What's an example of that? For example, I feel a e- really easy way to take off a lot of that caregiving burden I want to have a service dog. And I don't know if that's a typical thing for patients with dementia, but I'm certainly going to be doing a lot of research and maybe even, you know, a special request on a different type of training for an animal for me. Um, And then also, you know, looking at care facilities, something that might suit my needs and my desires more than another. And then, you know, we even talked about it before, but having my dignity stay intact, I like to look good. And so making sure that, you know, my family knows that my caregivers know that that's important to me to get ready every day and be presentable. And, um, you know, little things like that. Do you remember things in family members who developed Alzheimer's where you say, I don't want that to happen to me? Very much so. And um, we have an uncle who is currently bedridden and can't speak. He can't feed himself. And he's 52 years old. And they have to keep him in a sedated state because, unfortunately, this disease does cause a lot of um, physical violent behavior. And I don't know how I avoid um, those stages of the disease, but I certainly know that I don't want to be, I don't know, locked in a room by myself in a bed with 
no hope, but I don't know how to avoid that either. I guess that's why I'm hoping for the best with this clinical drug trial that I'm in. And um, it, again, seems to be going fairly well um, because we're still we're still going through the motions of the drug trial. It's a worldwide study. There's um, just a little over a hundred of us that are in this drug trial and not to think that I'm putting all of my, or I'm, you know, trying not to put all of my eggs in one basket, but really hoping for a lot from this drug study. I mean, this would be a drug that might slow the progression of the disease. Is that what it would do? It would prevent the disease from developing altogether. So it's a preventative drug. I think at this point they're realizing there's not a lot of reversal that can happen, but it's purely preventative. Robin, you've decided to work for the Wyoming chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. You've been working as a hairstylist for many years why focus on this now? I decided years ago that once I became public with my information, I knew it was a bell that I couldn't unring. But I also knew that it was important to educate people. I've been a volunteer with the Alzheimer's Association since 2006, and I've worn many different hats. And this opportunity kind of just felt like a full circle moment. I'm now able to commit all of my time to something that I was already very, very passionate about. And it is going to be a little bit of a struggle. I am obviously very passionate about the disease, but it's also very emotional. And so... Lately, I've, you know, shown up at a couple of events and have to excuse myself for a minute when I see this sweet old man gathering information from us and know that he's got his loved one at home and he's doing everything he can to keep her safe and keep her home and take care of her. And it tears my heart out. But then I also know that we're there to support those people and to support someone who's going through one of the hardest things of their life is very rewarding. Do you hold out hope there will be a cure during your lifetime? I certainly do. We at the Alzheimer's Association are already talking about the first survivor. We know that the first survivor is out there. It's our um, our white flower is the first survivor. And yeah, I pretty much have decided it's me. <laughs> So, Jessica, you're a little teary there. (laughs) Where are the tears coming from? It's been a long journey, and we have a lot more ahead of us. And the fact that she can just put herself out there in those situations every day, basically, is um, really inspiring to me because I could not do that. I tried multiple, multiple times to be more involved with the Alzheimer's Association in different facets. And I had to, um, I've had to just take a step back and I get way too emotional about those situations. And I have a really hard time watching people with the disease, watching loved ones suffer. I just, I just can't handle it. (laughs) So you can be proud of your little sister. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, you guys. Thanks, Andrea.
Robin McIntyre lives in Laramie. She tested positive for a genetic mutation for early-onset Alzheimer's that runs in her family. Her sister Jessica McIntyre lives in Lakewood. She tested negative. Our discussion is part of ongoing conversations we're having with people confronted with Alzheimer's and with researchers studying the disease. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Colorado's Front Range. Just where does it start and end? Why does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? What's the perfect seat at Red Rocks for the best sound? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Rachel Estabrook from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Help us all discover more about our state of wonders. CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Ghost towns have a special pull on our imagination. One named Carpenter was located in the barest of desert north of Grand Junction at the base of the Bookcliff Mountains. Its name comes from its founder, J.T. Carpenter. The town is so ghostly that you can barely see where it was. But more than a century ago, Carpenter was on track to possibly overshadow Grand Junction. Ike Rakeski from the Mesa County Library filled us in. Ike, welcome. Thank you. You've done quite a bit of hiking around the old town of Carpenter. Tell us what we would see or not see in Carpenter today. I'd say that today, what you would see at Carpenter is kind of a shell of its former self. At one point during Carpenter's heyday, it was quite a little town. It's interesting to see photos, historic photos of Carpenter, And to say like, whoa, what are these? There's like 10, 12 buildings here. And some of the buildings were quite elaborate. You'll find other random things. There's a a boulder with the year 1907 carved into it. You'll also see the grade of the old railroad. Who was the man who started it all? W.T. Carpenter. What was it that made him see the area as something that had potential? W.T. Carpenter had moved to the Grand Valley from Illinois and what it was, the, the draw for the town of Carpenter, was, it was a mining camp for coal mining. He saw it, it wasn't just the, the two coal mines at Carpenter. There was the, the Bookcliff Mine and also the Grand Valley Mine. You also had the railroad, which allowed them to get the coal from the mines down to Grand Junction. And then U.S. also had these kind of interesting entrepreneurial ideas or pursuits that W.T. Carpenter um envisioned in his mind. You had the spring that's located nearby, other tourist draws that would bring people up to Carpenter. You know, a fancy place back east or maybe something like Glenwood Springs. He wanted it to be more than just the coal mines. Yeah. Did people buy into WT's plan for Carpenter that it would become a resort? I would say the whole like larger resort idea never really materialized. There was kind of a discussion amongst locals in the Grand Valley about what town would really take off, whether it would be Carpenter or Grand Junction. And nowadays, we know the result of that debate. We're here in downtown Grand Junction on Main Street. But it, Carpenter was a place to go for a lot of people. There were school groups that would go up there. There were groups that would go up there in the spring. Um, It sounds like the area around Carpenter was just filled with fields of wildflowers. So you you would see stories in the newspaper. 
you would even see photos of these groups, you know, dressed up to go all the way out into the middle of the desert, a pretty desolate place. But going out to pick wildflowers was one of those things that brought pretty large groups to the town. Let's talk a little bit more about the Little Book Cliff Railroad that went from Carpenter right into the heart of Grand Junction. How important was that to the area's past? Yeah, so I've been to both as as research as a librarian and also just as a recreational avid hiker in Mesa County. I've been to other ghost towns here in Mesa County. You don't have railroad tracks. You don't have railroads leading to those other ghost towns. The Bookcliff Railway allowed Carpenter to become a lot more than what it would have necessarily become. To me, having a, a railroad, any kind of railroad, connect a pretty rural ghost town or mining camp to what was really a developing Grand Junction would have made it pretty special in that way. During the town of Carpenter's heyday, W.T. also built this lake in Grand Junction. He called it Rockaway Beach, and he sold yep. he sold home sites along it. He said it was going to be equal to Capitol Hill in Denver. Does Rockaway Beach still exist? It does. So the lake is actually, there's the lakeside neighborhood here in Grand Junction. It's a nice little lake surrounded by green, you know, and and where we are, it's the, we're in the high desert. The fact that that lake still exists in is, is a nice little place to go and hang out. And the lake is one of the, probably in my opinion, one of the most pristine remnants of Carpenter's vision. It sounds like though it doesn't bear any resemblance to Capitol Hill in Denver. Yeah. And I mean, I've seen other examples that are similar where you have a man like W.T. Carpenter is, you know, not only was he a banker, an entrepreneur, an investor, but he was also just a, a booster of his idea. Um, he wanted to make it sound like it was maybe bigger than it actually was. Carpenter, the place, was going along just fine until 1893. That's when the silver market crashed, and that started to pull the coal industry down with it. And W.T.'s fortunes began to slip away. In 1897, he lost everything, or pretty much everything. He took off for the Yukon to try to make it there, and he ended up running a lemonade stand in Dawson, (laughs) Alaska. That eventually turned into a money-making lunch counter. And the next owner, Phillips, made this addition to Carpenter. He added sort of a carnival ride. Tell us about the Go Devil. Yep. So the Go Devil was no motorized, not motorized at all. And it would take people from the Grand Junction or, or anywhere in the Grand Valley and probably outside of the Grand Valley. It could take them all the way up to the foot of the book cliffs where the town was. And then using gravity um, and possibly wind, things like that, it could take them all the way back down to Grand Junction. Handbrake operated. If something like that existed nowadays, I wonder if it would even be possible due to possible safety concerns and liability and things like that. Phillips himself didn't buy Carpenter with his own money. It was financed by his uncle back in Massachusetts. I understand when that uncle died, Carpenter actually ends up in the hands of Princeton University. How did that happen? You kind of wonder, yeah, it's like, how did an Ivy League school like Princeton, where was that connection? It was owned by the school for quite a while. I don't think a long period of time, but quite a while. 
yeah, you have this Ivy League school back in the East Coast, and then you have it oversee these coal mines in the camp. And it's just kind of an interesting little side note in history, I think. Then Carpenter sort of dropped off the map and was pretty much forgotten until the 1960s. Some teens were exploring out in the desert, and they stumbled on what was left of Carpenter, and that sparked a flurry of attention, a lot of vandalizing, and most of what was left in town was hauled off. Then flash forward to 1989, Carpenter was in the news again when three Grand Junction teens died there, what happened? Yeah, so I was about 10 years old when that, that tragic accident occurred. As far as I understand, there were six young people, six teens, who went into the Bookcliff mine, and then three of them tragically died because of the fumes. And then what actually the cause of their death, as far as I understand, was the lack of oxygen at the bottom of the floor of the mine. And the three other ones were able to escape and get back to the nearest town and neighborhood and call call the authorities. It seems that very few people in the area have even heard about Carpenter. Has there been any movement to memorialize it? There is a memorial to the teens who died at the Bookcliff Mine. I only ever heard about Carpenter through my work as a librarian at, at Mesa County Libraries, and a patron had actually asked me about it. I thought, I've never even heard of Carpenter. But beyond that, there's not a whole lot of knowledge about the town of Carpenter. The good news, though, is that there's the book that exists that really is a gem um, as far as talking about the history of the town. Ike, thanks so much. Sure. Thank you. Ike Rakeski is with the Mesa County Library. We spoke in October about the Mesa County ghost town of Carpenter, which mostly has been lost to scavengers and to the shifting sands of time. The coffee table book he mentioned is called Little Book Cliff Railway. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.